You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around, and you shall measure outside the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits, the city being in the middle. This shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them you shall give forty-two cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be forty-eight with their pasture lands, and as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death, and if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred, or hurled something at him, lying in wait so that he died, or in enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood 
shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules, and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge, to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge, to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood, for he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession, and these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death, and you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest." You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, Yahweh, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel." Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 647 of this podcast. That was a reading from Numbers chapter 35 and some interesting juxtaposition, you might say, some interesting things to put side by side, some interesting people to put side by side, you might say. I mean... What is all this? What What is all this about the cities for the Levites and the cities for refuge? What is all this about giving to the Levites a place to live and then also in the very next section, hey, if somebody has killed somebody, yeah, they also need a place to live if yeah, we're not sure, right? We're not 100% sure whether this was malicious intent. Welcome back again to our ongoing exploration of the Old Testament. <laughs> Once again, for those unfamiliar, Numbers and before Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus have a lot of surprises. And even for myself, having read through the Bible cover to cover 
when I was in high school and then subsequently referring back again and again as passages would be brought to mind, I believe by the Lord God, I believe by the Holy Spirit residing in me and with me, not because I am worthy of that, but because it pleases God to make me his own and to lead me and to guide me and to answer my prayers asking for wisdom, not always to give me the easy out, to be sure, but as God has brought passages of Scripture to mind in various situations, by his Holy Spirit bringing them to mind and helping me to understand certain things, I have something arguably better than an easy out. I have peace with God, and I have peace with myself. And then I also subsequently have peace, as much as depends on me, with my fellow man. And that is to say, I can speak from experience. It doesn't always depend on me. It doesn't always depend on you, friend, your peace with others. But to the extent that it does, even when you have caused a rift, you have sinned against this other person, even there, he gives more grace. He, that is God, has given us in Christ Jesus everything we need for life and godliness. This is Messiah. This is Christ. This is the Son of God we're talking about after all. But in Numbers 35, you have to just imagine for a moment if you are an outside observer knowing that somebody has died and that one way or the other, either on purpose and premeditated or accidental an honest mistake, but a careless mistake, nevertheless, one way or the other, this person has died as a result of the actions of this other person, and we either don't have any witnesses or we have one witness. If you're an outside observer and you hear one witness say, he did it, he meant to do it, he was trying to do it, he needs to pay, he needs to be punished, here you have God resolving the dilemma you may find yourself in, because you may be Wondering, well, is this one witness to the crime telling the truth? How do we know they're not the ones who killed this person who has turned up dead? How do we know that they are not just deflecting attention away from the fact that they themselves may have done this thing? May they might have, they maybe they have. I don't know. We don't know. We weren't there. God has given in this passage a way out of the dilemma for those who are not personally witnesses to what happened. The way out is consider the situation and how many witnesses do you have? Do you have just one witness? Well, in that case, the person who is a manslayer, he has killed a man and we're not sure if it was premeditated or if it was an honest mistake, it was an accident. This man can seek refuge in one of these cities of refuge. And he has to stay there. He has to stay there until the death of the high priest. Once the high priest has passed away, then this man can come home again. He can go back to his inheritance, his possession in the land. But until that time, if he steps out of the city walls and the avenger of blood, that is, 
the one who has the first claim on avenging the death of the man who has died, if that man is so sure, if he is so convinced that this was murder and this is the man who did it, if the man who did it is thought to have done it on purpose, he had better stay inside the city of refuge because if he comes back out before the appointed time, he could be killed. And to some extent, you put that in the same category as the original death, not knowing, not knowing whether he was guilty or innocent. You also, by extension, don't know whether the avenger of blood is guilty or innocent. God knows, but then this is interesting because what God is not setting up is a constant, continual, case-by-case dependence on God to supernaturally reveal to those involved what the truth of the situation is in all of the particulars. Why? When God could? I don't know. I could speculate. You could speculate. We could speculate together. I don't know. But what we do know is that God is setting up a procedure. He is setting up a standard and mores. He is setting up order and he is giving the instructions to the people and he is saying, this is what you are to do in these circumstances. Now, what's interesting too is witnesses or no witnesses, if the one who has died, died due to some kind of an iron implement or a stone implement or a wooden implement, you might say a weapon or a tool that could very easily, very, very easily have been used as a weapon, well then, it's murder. And what's interesting about that is you might say, well, you know, hypothetically, it could have been an accident even with some iron or stone or wooden implement or weapon. It could have been an accident, but then that's too easy, right? It's too easy to let the guilty off scot-free if they just have to wait until nobody's looking and they can get away with murder. That's not what God sets up. It's also too easy if you can always have the out of saying, well, it was an accident, right? I didn't mean to. It's too easy to have that turn into everybody's just careless. See, even if it was an honest mistake, it was an accident, even then there are life-changing consequences to have to leave where you're from, leave your possession, your land, and go and live in one of these cities of refuge. That is life-changing. And who knows, what if the chief priest has a long time yet to live? It could be a long, long time before you're back home again. And maybe the memory will have faded. And because God had said this is what is expected, everyone involved, everyone who was privy or on the peripheral will have had a chance to calm down. But it could be years. It could be decades. Even if it's just years. There's no predetermined, fixed, mandatory minimum sentence. And also, oh, by the way, can I just point out that this is not prison. This is not a jail cell. You're going to the city of refuge to be protected if you have 
accidentally killed somebody, you're going to that city of refuge to live and within the confines of the city to be able to live and move around freely. You just can't go outside the city. So some people might say, well, this is the basis for the modern day prison system. But I would say absolutely not. Absolutely not. As with so many things that need to be reformed in the United States of America, the prison system is broken. Our justice system is a farce. The idea that we warehouse people who have committed murder, sometimes indefinitely, instead of putting them to death, is disobedient. It's unjust, it's wicked, it's unwise, but it's also ungodly. The idea that we just lock away for years and years and years people who have committed other crimes short of murder, we lock them away for years and years and years and years, sometimes for life, I think is not so good. If their crime is so severe that you're going to lock them away for life, maybe it just needs to be the death penalty. And if it's less severe, if this is a property crime, nobody's been killed, nobody's been maimed, handicapped. If it's a property crime, as in theft, what ought to be is that they don't pay their debt to society because they don't have a debt to society. They pay back what they stole to the one that they stole from. That's what it should be. That's the biblical standard. That makes way more sense. That fits the crime. The punishment should fit the crime. That's what we find in the case of murder. The punishment fits the crime. Now, you say, but what about manslaughter? What about the manslayer who's not going to be put to death? He has the option to go to the city of refuge. Humanly speaking, we don't know if it was premeditated and intentional Based on the circumstances, we have reason to believe that this very probably could have been an accident and we can't prove otherwise. And so you have here the basis for saying there's a distinction between intentional and unintentional. And actually, we find that elsewhere in the Old Testament law. There is a distinction between the intentional sin, which is high-handed and arrogant and rebellious, and God takes it much more seriously and punishes it much more severely in comparison with the accidental sin. If anyone sinned and they didn't even know that they sinned, God had a different standard for how they were to be treated or how their sins were to be atoned for. And so also, not just in how the man relates to God, whether sinning intentionally or unintentionally, but also how the man relates to his fellow man, It's not to say that it's not a sin if it was an accident. No, there's still a sinful quality to being careless. But it is to say that that sin of being careless needs to be dealt with differently than the sin of being malicious, intending to destroy this other person. These have to be distinguished from one another and they have to be dealt with differently. In the case of the death of another person, The murderer is to be put to death, period. The person we reasonably suppose accidentally killed this other person is to be given a place to take refuge. What's interesting too here is you have the juxtaposition, as I said, the juxtaposition of the cities for the Levites passages and the cities of refuge passages 
here in Numbers 35. And why I say that's interesting is because the priesthood, being holy, you would think that gets dealt with in a totally different place. And yet, what do we find? God goes from talking about giving instructions to Moses about the cities for the Levites, where the Levites will be able to live, cities that are to be given to the Levites, and on the other hand, cities that are to be set aside for, in some sense, fugitives, but those who are seeking refuge. And actually, oh, by the way, if you didn't know, those two words are very closely related etymologically. They're very closely related to the word fugger in Latin, which means flee, run, escape. So you have these cities of escape. And what's interesting about that in conjunction with the cities for the Levites is the Levites need to have a place to live. They have a place in Israel, but they don't have an inheritance like the other tribes do. And so in some sense, they need to have a place that they can go home to. It's not the same, right? It's not the same. They're set apart. They're supposed to be holy to Yahweh, their God. They're supposed to represent the people to God and God to the people. But then they're not innocent. They themselves need atonement. And again, this is why I say all of this is good. God giving this order to his people is good. God fulfilling his promises, making the promises in the first place to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is good. God sending his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, also exceedingly good. Because even the best of priests is in need of atonement, except in the case of Jesus, our high priest. In his case, he is our city of refuge. He is the city that is set aside for us. We go to him and we find our home. And for those who are in Christ, we find intentional, unintentional, either way, whether we are set apart as holy, and that's what marks our lives, or foolish, careless, frivolous, accidentally causing problems, not being able to resolve them in and of ourselves, we find that Jesus has prepared a place for us, like a city of refuge. But actually much better than a city of refuge because this is more like a city set aside for the priesthood. I find it interesting that these things are put together. They're put side by side in the same chapter. I find it interesting that you have 42 cities in addition to six cities of refuge. Verse 6, the cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you give to the Levites shall be 48. So that is to say, 48 cities, not all of them are cities of refuge, but six of them, that's a pretty good number of cities to have set aside for the special purpose of a place to go. And what's interesting, too, is 
what is life like in a city of refuge, which first and foremost is given to the Levites, but then secondarily also is a place for those seeking refuge. Also, oh, by the way, how does this relate to the medieval tradition of people being able to go into a church or a cathedral or a monastery, traditionally being able to find safe harbor there? There have been a few examples throughout history where that was not respected, where an enemy had gone into a church And what did his pursuer do but go in right after him and cut him down or drag him out and kill him outside? That's always been looked on as heinous and corrupt and evil, sacrilegious. And I think it has a lot to do with the principle, not that everybody is consciously following Numbers 35, but the principle in Numbers 35 that these cities of refuge are a subset of the cities set aside for the Levites. That's God's idea. That's what God tells Israel to do through Moses. And oh, by the way, too, and just think about this. If you are a man who has committed manslaughter in Israel and you have to take refuge in one of these six cities of refuge and you're living amongst the Levites for years or even decades, is that perhaps a kind of rehabilitation? Do you If the priests are worth anything, do you perhaps go back to your lands, your community, your neighborhood? Do you perhaps go back in a better state spiritually, more intentional, more disciplined, more orderly, more self-controlled than you left? I would hope so. I would think so. That seems very reasonable. Also, oh, by the way, from the other perspective... If you're one of these Levites living in these cities of refuge, are you perhaps kept from being a tad too high and mighty, thinking a bit too much of yourself as holy? Are you protected and insulated from that a little bit by having these fugitives living among you for years as you get to know them, as you realize, you know what, there's not that much difference between them and me. And I should be more careful. I should be more intentional. I should take better care so that I don't accidentally sin. Maybe, right? Maybe. Just a thought. Let's pivot though. And let's talk about some current events items. First off, Jessica Seaman over at the Denver Post published a piece June 15th, Denver School Board Reverses 2020 Ban on Police and Schools Paving Way for Long-Term Return of SROs. Decision to more permanently reinstate SROs follows a March shooting inside East High School. Now, what is an SRO? You may be wondering. I had to look it up. I didn't know. An SRO is a school resource officer. Essentially, it's another term for a police officer. It's a police officer. I don't know why we need a different term for police in a school setting, but there you have it. It would seem there's still some uncomfortability with just saying flat out, you have police in schools. But it's interesting because right just there in the title, we see that the police in schools were banned in 2020. What else was happening in 2020? Oh, you know. COVID lockdowns, 
a great deal of concern about election integrity or questions being asked and raised about how the election was carried out, overseen, officiated, how the results were tabulated and reported. But we also had Black Lives Matter, very upset, very active in 2020. Go figure. You don't hear a whole lot out of Black Lives Matter ever since Trump lost or is said to have lost or however you want to characterize it. He's not in the White House. He is not the president right now. Joe Biden is the president. It's interesting how little we hear about Black Lives Matter since Trump left the White House. Funny. It seems like we're only hearing scandals concerning how the money was spent. Where did the money go? What was done with it? And what was this about the buying of mansions and nepotism and a whole lot of money being paid to people who weren't qualified to be doing jobs that they were said to have uh, taken on for the organization? Funny that, but it would seem that Denver public schools were caught up in the larger nationwide wave of defunding the police or pushing the police out or stigmatizing law enforcement as inherently racist. And now they are trying to walk that back because they realize when you don't have somebody to enforce the law or the rules, if you don't have in particular, strong men capable of backing up their orders and their commands and the law with force, what you get is chaos and mayhem and bedlam and violence, actually. Now, I bring this up in relation to Numbers 35 because you have in Numbers 35 no mention of law enforcement, but you do have law enforcement. And what I mean is we think law enforcement and we think person. We think a man with a badge. We think a cop. We think somebody taking an oath and pledging to serve and protect. And whether you like cops or you don't like cops, we think law enforcement and we think men and women in uniform or the men and women who oversee those men and women in uniform. But you have law enforcement in Numbers 35. Clearly, it's ordered, it's commanded. How was it carried out in the particulars, in the details? I don't know. But God commanded, if someone has murdered, they are to be put to death. That sounds like law enforcement. Now, what's interesting is very often people will say if they are against defunding the police, if they want safe streets, safe neighborhoods, safe cities, safe public places, they'll say you need good men with guns to be able to stop bad men with guns. But here's the thing. Those good men don't have to be law enforcement officers. They don't. And actually, I would argue We should have more of a general expectation than we do that men in the community are upholding the law. Men. And by all means, have due process. Have judges. 
have elders of the city, have a city council, have a formal system of evaluating, are there witnesses to this? Are they credible witnesses? Is there any evidence that such and such happened or didn't happen? Have all of that. But the idea that we would rely on law enforcement, I think, is very sad, not because I have something against law enforcement. I know some very fine people who are cops, and I think very highly of them for being cops. But I think it's not so good that there's this dependence on law enforcement to do a lot of the cleanup for what the rest of society is neglecting. And I would say a very similar thing is true in the case of medicine. Just take that issue and boil it down to the question of who is responsible, who should be paying attention, who should be educating themselves and making informed decisions and proactive. Take that issue and transpose it from law enforcement to healthcare. And I think there's a remarkable consistency on the part of those who want to just have somebody else clean it up. They're going to do whatever. They want somebody else to clean it up. And they want to be able to say, well, I'm not an expert, right? Well, that's not my job. But how much of the policing in a public school in Denver would be necessary if, say, for instance, mothers and fathers were raising their sons in particular, but also their daughters to be respectful, to be upstanding, to be decent, to do what is right? How much of the need for SROs in Denver public schools is actually a proof that the public schools are not a suitable environment. We should stop trusting that they are going to instill in these kids the morals and the good character and the sound judgment necessary to be good citizens. If you need a cop standing over you all the time to make sure that you behave and you treat the people around you with respect and dignity and that you are not assaulting other people, robbing other people, trying to murder other people. If you need a cop standing over you all the time, what are we doing, right? What are we doing? But even just calling them SROs, I believe is a dodge. I think it's a way of trying to conceal and mask the fact that we need police in the public schools. I was homeschooled from little on up. My wife and I are homeschooling our kids. It's primarily her. Let's be honest, she does most of the day-to-day. I pitch in here and there. I help provide oversight and advice and instruction to augment here and there. I help to provide some discipline and correction for our kids when they're misbehaving or they're being unruly or difficult. But you don't need an SRO in a homeschooling environment. Or if you do, the SRO is mom and dad. And if mom and dad are taking care of their kids, according to what God has commanded, bringing them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord, and also fathers, don't neglect this, not provoking your children to wrath. If the father and the mother are doing that in the home, they're going to have the love and respect of their children. Their children are going to want to listen to what mom and dad are saying in the long run. But too many parents give up far too easily. And they've taken bad advice from the so-called experts. 
who happen to make quite a lot of money off of keeping you dependent on them when what really ought to be the case is moms and dads make decisions in light of God's word, operating from common sense and a genuine, deep, and abiding love for their children. A commitment to one another, mom and dad, you can model for your kids what it looks like to agree agreeably and to disagree agreeably. Also, you can model for them what it looks like to have authority and submission in the home. I think this is part of the reason why wives are told by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to be subject to their husbands, to submit to their husbands and everything as unto the Lord. I think this is part of the reason is because it models for any children in the mix how to be subject to proper authority. I think so also fathers being told not to exasperate their children, not to provoke their children to wrath, and also to love their wives in an understanding way, living with their wives in an understanding way, loving their wives as Christ loved the church. I believe part of what that teaches children is here is how you love and care for and be considerate of somebody who is smaller than you, weaker than you. Here's how you take care of, provide for, protect, guide, look out for, consider, and enjoy a relationship with somebody who you're bigger than. That helps frame expectations for children when they grow up seeing that. An SRO being needed in Denver Public Schools, I think, is indicative of the bankruptcy morally of the public education system. I think that this is further proof that you should buy my book. And this is why we homeschool. Go check it out. Do a Google search. Look it up on Amazon. Buy a copy of my book. Be persuaded if you haven't been yet. Be encouraged if you have been persuaded. This is why we homeschool. Because God has a much better plan and purpose for the family than what has been presented to you, what will be presented to you time and again in the popular culture, in TV shows, in movies, in many cases. I'm going to play a clip for you here of a video I came across here in the last day or so, a video of Lila Rose with live action doing a reaction to a bit of back and forth on American Idol, a certain mom, Sarah Beth Lieb, who tried out, 25 years old, and got some interesting reaction from pop star Katy Perry. I won't give too much away. I'll just play for you a few minutes of this video and you can check out the full video if you want to afterwards. But here it is. Without further ado, cut one. Let's do it. My name is Sarah Beth and I'm 25 and I'm from California. You cannot be 25. <laughs> what are you saying? Yes, 25. No, I, 16. 16. I mean, come on. Bless you guys are my favorite. Give us a real. Okay, she's so cute because of her red hair. My two kids, my one and three old, they have red hair. So I'm a big fan already. And I like that she's from California. I'm from California. I like it. I have, I have three kids, so that's like. Get what? away from here. What are you saying? Nice. Uh, <laughs> okay, Katie? Nope. It's okay. If Katie lays on the table, I think I'm going to pass out. Three kids. <laughs> Honey, you've been laying on the table too much. Yeah, no. You know. Hey, come on. Come on, Katie Perry. Why you have to be that way? 
But you have to do that. It's not necessary. It's not nice. She has three kids, three souls. That's amazing. She's this beautiful woman singing her dreams. And she has three beautiful kids, which we're about to see videos of them in a minute. And you are like criticizing her for having sex. <laughs> like, don't do it. Like, it such a dumb response to a married woman who's living her dreams. And I don't know. I feel like that a comment like that can only come from a place of some sort of bitterness or even envy. So it's just sad. It's so sad. You have to do that, Katie. Oh. <laughs> Why is that guy laughing? You didn't need to laugh like that. It was a bad joke. Let's keep going. It's okay. It's all right. It's going to get better. Surprise! I have a little family, got married young, and <laughs> yeah, living that life now. I am definitely grateful to be able to get to stay home with my kids pretty much full time. But when it comes to like pursuing music and stuff, this is all brand new. <laughs> like the past. I'm gonna talk about like wholesome, wholesome, beautiful, cute, gorgeous kids, beautiful husband, beautiful family, and she like is cherishing her time with them. Do you think the message from the soul culture today is like working at home is like for losers or like working with your kids, being at home with your kids is like for losers, basically. And she's like saying she gets to do it. Like it's a gift because it is a gift. It's so awesome. Like I'm so grateful that I get to work from home for a lot of my work at Life Action, my work with uh, media endeavors and creative stuff. I'm so blessed for that. I'm so grateful for that. And it looks like she is too. And on top of that, she's also talking about she's not giving up on her her professional work or her talent. You know, she can be a talented mom at the same, both talented and be a mom. Anyways, now I get to hear more about her singing. Her singing voice is absolutely incredible. Six months is the first time in my life that I've given myself a minute for me. And I've decided like, you know what, enough people have told me like, you gotta do something with your voice. Oh man, I'm gonna start crying. I miss my kids. <laughs> okay, I gotta go now. I'm gonna go sing. I'll see you guys later. Wish me luck. Okay, I don't know if they staged that because you know how kids they are. They could be in a bad mood or in the middle of something. So I don't know if that was like a live interaction. She just said, if so, kudos to the family because that was daring to put all three kids on screen for like a live interaction right before she's about to sing on a competition that's like televised basically worldwide. So very brave, very beautiful family. Let's hear her sing. And by the way, it's okay as a mom to be and you can be a mom that's very dedicated to your kids and home with them a lot of the time, but then also has dreams or you're working outside the house to contribute to the family to help support your family it's okay like with mothers with womanhood it's not one size fits all it's about priorities and principles and the rest is up to the creativity and the in the uniqueness of the individual so i love that she's living this so beautifully so how did you get from mom to music dude i'm not gonna lie i'm not really a musician I <laughs> my question is so dumb i'm sorry i'm sorry i don't want to be super critical of these charges but how does your gut from mom to music? As if, if you're a mom, suddenly you don't have a voice anymore. As if you're a mom and suddenly you're not a musician. You're not good at music. If, as if you're a mom and suddenly like you're nothing else but a mother. When mother, I believe, is like the height of, of femininity to be able to mother, whether it's biologically or spiritually or just to be able to nurture. But that's not the 100% wholeness of a person, right? And so the, the judge is like, oh, how can you be a mother, a musician and a mother? And it's like, do they ask men that? How can you be a musician and a father? Most musicians today, by the way, who have like made it are mothers or fathers of mothers and fathers. So the question already is like weird. It's almost like they're it's in a weird way. They're belittling her motherhood and uh, condescending to her. I, I don't like it. 
just called Lionel Richie, dude. No, sir, no, no, sorry. sir, no. I'm not gonna. No. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I like to do karaoke like, with my friends, and <laughs> I did like a little bit of like church choir. And is and this your dream? We um, is it now? Uh, if it's not your dream, you, you might need to leave because there's a lot of dreams behind you. Right. Okay, so we'll just stop right there. A couple things. Uh, you know, one, I am reacting to a reaction, a reaction to judges reacting to this gal, this 25-year-old wife and mother from California who tried out for American Idol. This video is three months old. For people who watch this stuff, I'm sure it's old news. But it's not old news to me. It's fresh in my mind, and it bothers me that Katy Perry is reacting to this mom, this young wife and mother, the way that she is. But something else is important to note, right? Besides the obnoxious comments from Katy Perry that are totally uncalled for. And man, man alive. Wow. Uh, ew, gross, right? Gross. Why be ugly? Why, why be ugly like that? <laughs> Something I do like here, one, I really like the way that Lila Rose talks through this. She's a lot more gracious than I have a notion to be, but that's good, right? Maybe it's good that she's being more gracious than I would be if I were reacting to this right from the jump. She's being kind, but she's also saying, no, this is ugly, right? This is a beautiful young woman who has a great singing voice, and she does. You can hear her singing voice later on in this video that was posted to Live Action's YouTube channel. She's got a beautiful voice, but the commentary from Lila Rose about moms and how Katy Perry was and Lionel Richie was portraying this either-or regarding motherhood and marriage you are either a mother or you can have a musical ability. You can have a talent when it comes to music. You can be successful in doing something else besides. You're either a mother or you're making something of your life, I guess. You know, in contrast to that, Lila Rose's way of characterizing all of this is just right. It's le mot juste because the frank truth is Young men, young women, you can get married, you can do it right, you know, get married, then have kids, raise those kids together, love one another, live for the Lord. You can do that and also do other things and not do other things like you abandon your family to go do other things, but you can do other things while you are married and have kids. And as I've said before, it's arguable that you doing those other things will be enhanced in many ways by you being married and you having kids. Yeah, there is a trade-off in terms of how much time and energy and attention you can pay to other things. But as Lila Rose says later on in this video, we need more people who are whole people. We need to not have quite so many of the obsessed with getting famous and they 
are willing to die to get famous. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. It's not realistic. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, I realize this is a young woman, and hopefully she is not taken in by all of the nonsense being thrown at her here and afterwards, I'm sure. I'm sure this wasn't the end of it. But just speaking personally, as somebody who has vocal talent, and I've been told I have a good voice, I have a good singing voice, I help with music from time to time at church, I help lead vocals at church, I have a good singing voice, and I would not trade my wife and our eight kids with a ninth on the way for fame and fortune due to my singing voice, due to my musical ability. I wouldn't trade being a father and a husband for being on American Idol and winning Katy Perry's approval and winning, uh, what's his face, Luke Bryant or whatever his name is, uh, winning his approval. Although I think I would be more likely to get his approval, but I'm not sad. I'm not disappointed. I don't look back on my life to this point, my adult life to this point, and wish that I'd gotten a thumbs up vote from Lionel Richie. I don't. And I bring this to your attention because I think it's actually also of a piece with Denver public schools needing public school resource officers, needing police officers. I think you have a lot of these kids growing up with mom and dad checked out because mom and dad have bought the lie that they should be pursuing fame and fortune and self-actualization. And so mom and dad are not either in the picture at all, or they're not really paying attention. They're not really raising their kids. They're not talking with them. They're not getting to know them. They're not leading them. They're not disciplining them. They're not correcting them. They're not showing them things. They're not looking out for them. They're not protecting them. They're not really providing for them holistically because mom and dad are acting under the same premise that Katy Perry was articulating there. And oh, by the way, how noxious is it to mock Some 25-year-old, beautiful young woman with a beautiful voice, enthusiastic, full of life, very excited to be there. Far more excited to be there, it seems, than Katy Perry is. Is she jealous? It would seem so. But to mock her about having three kids at 25? My wife and I had four kids by 25, actually. And what, right? What's the... Or else, the or else that's being promoted in broader society, in the public square, by the likes of Katy Perry, by the way, the norm is not that you don't have relations with somebody by the age of 25, and it's certainly not being promoted that, well, you should probably have relations less than, you know, three times. No, no, what's being promoted is Hook up with as many partners as you possibly can, if that's what makes you happy, or bounce around every couple of years to a different boyfriend, girlfriend, or every few months, or every few weeks, you know, whatever, whatever you feel like, right? What's being stigmatized, what's being mocked is having three kids, and being married, and having three kids, and being a stay-at-home mom, and having three kids. That's what's being mocked, and that's highly offensive and very corrosive to the general well-being of society. It's a really selfish contribution being offered up to us 
on American Idol. And oh, by the way, I mean, it's in the name, right? American Idol. What's the idol? Is it the person? Hmm. For the people who are actually on these seasons, very often the idol is fame and fortune. The idol is not they themselves when they get to the very top. They're not worshiping themselves per se, but if they're serving money and influence and notoriety, if they're serving that instead of serving God, well, again, what does Jesus say? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That very much is apropos to be thinking of in relation to this back and forth here. And it's not to say, if you don't get married, if you don't have kids, well, then you just love the world. No, no, no. Sometimes people don't get married because they're living for the Lord. That happens. I think that's not the majority reason why so many young people are not getting married. Majority reason is they've been badgered out of it. They've been traumatized by their own parents getting divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried or dating around, growing up without a father in the home or a mother in the home. They've been abused or neglected or both by turn. And they think, well, the solution to that is I'm just not going to get married and I'm not going to have kids. But we have something much better. We have God's word to tell us how to do these things correctly and in order and in a way that will be blessed and in a way that will be happy and fulfilling. And more of us need to know that. More of us need to be exemplifying it and not embarrassed, not hanging our heads to be exemplifying it and living it out. More of us need to be normalizing what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. I don't know what the rest of the story is for this Sarabeth Lieb, but hopefully, hopefully she's able to not get all caught up in the nonsense and she's able to normalize being a young wife and mother and having the right priorities. I hope. In other news, though, let's move on. <laughs> let's move on. Daily Wire News reported June 21st on a interview that former President Donald Trump did with Brett Baer over at Fox News, in which he was asked about wanting to execute drug dealers, even though he pardoned and signed the First Step Act. I'm going to go ahead and play for you cut two here, and you can take a listen to this back and forth. And I want to tie it in with Numbers 35 to talk about, again, how I think our criminal justice system, as so many things are in America, I think it needs badly. It needs badly to be overhauled. But here it is, cut two. Take a listen. On law and order, you've said you'd be in favor of the death penalty for drug dealers. Yeah. Still the case? Yeah, it's the only way you're going to stop it. Look, we can be babies and we can have blue ribbon committees. I had my great first lady, beautiful wife, Melania, who says hello. She was in charge of a committee, a blue ribbon committee of socialites and various other people that want to be on a committee. And they worked very hard. And by the way, had an impact. You know, we, we brought it down 18%. But 18% is not 100%. When I was in China, I met with President Xi, 1.4 billion people. I said, do you have a drug problem? No, 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 no. I do not have a drug problem. I said, hmm, why do you say that is? Because we immediately give a quick trial and a death penalty to drug dealers. 
And if you go to Singapore, rich, everything else, they, they had a huge drug problem. Zero drug problem. If you want to get rid of it now, I don't know that this country is ready for it. I just don't know. You know, every time I say it, I sort of like, it's not easy to say the death penalty. But remember this, a drug dealer, male or female drug dealer, plenty of female drug dealers too, a drug dealer will kill approximately 500 people during the course of his or her life. So you were a big proponent of the First Step Act, the yeah. criminal justice reform. You even ran an ad during the Super Bowl about it. With gratitude. I want to thank President Donald John Trump. Woo! Critics of that law point out that 13,500 people have been released. About 12% of them have committed serious crimes after that. Joel Francisco was serving a life sentence for selling crack cocaine. He was released in 2019, alleged stabbing a man to death, uh, rearrested. Paul Moore, drug trafficker, fatally shot a rival, received a reduced sentence. So there are those. And your opponents are hitting on focused, this. Yeah, but I focused on nonviolent crime. As an example, a woman who you know very well was in jail. She had 24 more years to serve. She served for 22 years. She had 24 Johnson. Alice. She was in the Super Bowl. High quality. Oh, yeah. I said, how many years? And she was on a telephone call, and they were involved in selling marijuana, mostly marijuana. And she got, like, 50 years in jail. But she'd be killed under your plan. Huh? As a drug dealer. No, no, no. Under my... Oh, under that? Uh... Oh, man. Okay. Cut, 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 cut. You can watch more of the interview if you want to. I'll put a link to the Daily Wire post where this tweet is embedded with the video from Fox News where Brett Baer talks with him for another three minutes and some change. But I just stop right there. I stop right there to go back actually to something I talked about several episodes ago with an article titled Deep State Theology in Providence Magazine by Mark Tooley where he was saying – that conspiracy theories sometimes are too easy to reach for as an explanation for why things are the way that they are. And we think that there's this highly coordinated master plan in all cases where things are broken, right? If things are broken systemically, we think, oh, you know, it must be very evil, nefarious people. And sometimes it is, right? Sometimes it is. But other times it's, actual, it's actually far simpler. And I actually... In thinking about it some more with regards to Mark Tooley's piece, it's important to give him some credit here because he's right that sometimes it's not a conspiracy. Sometimes it's just casual nonsense. It's casual folly. It's arbitrary. And again, going back to Numbers 35, this is what's so refreshing about the orderliness of what God commands and what he prescribes with regards to the death penalty. It's very clear what the death penalty is reserved for in the Old Testament law. It's very clear. It's very straightforward. If somebody commits murder, and we know that they committed murder, we know this was premeditated, we know that it was intentional, put them to death. Period. End of story. If they didn't mean to kill somebody, but they did kill someone through an accident— and we don't have more than one witness to say otherwise, and we don't have clear intent to murder, then what is commanded by God in their cases is you let them go to a city of refuge. 
Now, what would that look like in our context? Are we under the law? Someone will chime in and say, oh, we're not under the law. We're under grace now. Uh, Yeah, but we have to figure out what to do with drug dealers. And if you're going to vote, you should probably figure out whether the people you're voting for are going to have laws that are more godly and more true and more likely to produce outcomes that would be pleasing to God. If we're praying for God's blessings, if we're praying for God's protection, if we're praying for God to give us wisdom, well, then we should actually go back and see what he's already said. You know, why wait? Why wait for God to say something new? Go back and read his word. Read what he has already said. You know, again, in the context of Numbers 35, we don't have God saying, if anyone is suspected of committing a murder, have him brought to the priest and the priest will ask me and then I will tell the priest whether he is a murderer or not. That's not what God does. That's not what God says. He sets up a system of orderly, regular administration of justice. And the question of intent is very important. Now, if you have drug dealers, here's where I would say this is important to take this example of what Trump is talking about, and he shouldn't be <laughs> he shouldn't be holding up Xi Jinping in China as an example to emulate. Oy, oy vey. But if you have a drug dealer who laced drugs with poison that is intended to kill those who take the drugs, that's murder. And the person who did that, if we find out that that's the case, that person should be put to death. Absolutely. A hundred percent. People who have knowingly, intentionally committed murder, they should be put to death. Period. And if they're drug dealers and they've intentionally killed somebody else, they've murdered somebody else as a drug dealer, they should be put to death. That's how you deal with that. If they gave drugs, sold drugs to somebody, and those drugs led to an overdose, they were feeding a habit right up until that habit killed the person who was addicted to those drugs, then I would say, in that case, you say, all right, there's a city of refuge. I don't know what that would look like. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know what that would look like in our context, but something like that would be more appropriate than what Trump is recommending, and also it would be more appropriate than our current system of administering justice to criminals with drug offenses. Uh, Oh, by the way, too, let's talk about how us warehousing so many criminals together actually makes for worse criminals. You put people who are rapists and drug dealers and murderers together, and however bad this or that criminal was going in, what are they like coming out again? Here's another difference with the cities of refuge on the one hand and the death penalty for murderers on the other hand in God's law. In the cities of refuge, as the alternative to putting somebody to death, you have somebody who's guilty of manslaughter living among the priests. That's a rehabilitation program. That is what we should be looking to for an aspirational model, not putting somebody who is suspected of murder, but we can't prove it. There are no witnesses. It might be manslaughter not putting that person behind bars with thieves and fraudsters and rapists. And then we'll just see what happens. We'll see what comes out. 
in a couple of decades. No, 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 no. That's corrosive for those criminals. If they weren't so bad and they come out worse, it's corrosive for corrections officers, so-called. I say so-called not because I doubt that they're trying to be correct in all cases, but all the corrections officers I've known over the years, very cynical people, very jaded people, and working with conflicts day in, day out. With the way our system is set up, it hardens their hearts. It's a hard thing to see. It's a very sad thing to see. It's a corrosive influence in society that we just warehouse people indefinitely, almost irrespective what they are guilty of in the way of breaking a law. It's almost like we're not serious about fixing the problems underlying the criminality. It's almost as if we don't really understand where the criminality is coming from. Go figure. But Trump here, I don't think he's being conspiratorial. I don't think he is part of some cabal. If he is thinking on the fly here and he was saying something he didn't expect to get called out for, it seemed good to him. But that's just it, right? If we're doing what's right in our own eyes and we're administering justice based on First and foremost, what seems good to us or what seems good to the Chinese? Like, get out of here. Come on. That's arbitrary. It's a moving target. That is not ever going to produce as good a results as obeying God and trusting that God knows our nature and God knows what's best for us as individuals and as a people. Next up, let's talk about a post over at Not To Be by Harris Rigby titled, Italy is going to remove lesbian partners from children's birth certificates. Quote, marriage is only between a man and a woman. As you may know, and you may not know, Italy has a prime minister who studied under and has been referred to as something of a disciple of the late, great British philosopher, conservative Roger Scruton. Italy's Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, promised to make social conservatism a priority, to quote Harris Rigby here, and to win victories for Italian families and children. And part of that, or consistent with that, a prosecutor of Padua ordered the cancellation of 33 birth certificates of children born to lesbian couples dating back to 2017, saying the name of non-biological mothers should be removed. This is per the order from Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni to city councils to stop registering same-sex parents' children. Which is to say, which is to say, it can be done. We could also have something like that here if we wanted to, if by God's grace, we could have a revival of Christian sentiment, which we should very much hope for and pray for and work towards, we could also have this happen here. And I very much would be in support of that. Why, why would we put a non-biological parent on a birth certificate for a newborn child? Why? Why would we do that? And what's going to happen with that child if they grow up not knowing their father 
and their mother, who's a lesbian, doesn't want to tell them, but they grow up and they want to find out who their father was and is. Why would we set those children up to not know who their fathers are? Why would we affirm and support and endorse as a people, as a country, those children growing up and not ever knowing who their father was and is? You know, there's a gal who I came into contact with in recent months who reached out going to college in Nevada, in Las Vegas. She reached out asking if I could help her figure out who her father is, who her biological father is. Ancestry.com said we were a match for possibly being second cousins based on DNA testing. And she wondered, could I help her narrow down who her father might be? Her mom didn't know. Her mom had, after giving birth to her 18 years ago, gotten married at a certain point to somebody who was not her father, but her mom doesn't know who the father is and was either. And I just think about that situation, this young woman, beautiful young woman, trying to figure out who her father was and is and wanting to meet him, wanting to know him. Is he a good guy? Is he not a good guy? Would he be interested in being involved in her life? There's just something very normal and very appropriate about her wanting to know who her father is. But when a government today says, you don't even... You don't even have to have the father's name on the birth certificate, but you could have the lesbian partner's name on the birth certificate. What is that? What is that to that young man or young woman 18 years into the future when they go looking for their biological father? What is that? There's so much more that is broken. You can't only deal with that, but by golly, we have to be able to deal with whether we're telling the truth on a birth certificate or not. Because what is that child going to be thinking of their own government when they grow up seeing somebody who is very clearly, very obviously not their father listed on the birth certificate just for sentimental reasons? What is that? What what is that with regards to the sentiments of that child? If you fast forward, or do we not care at all about how that child is going to feel 18 years from now? what this is going to do to them to not have a father to know ever, possibly. We should be caring more about how these decisions impact future generations, and we should be looking back to past generations, previous generations. We shouldn't be letting it hold us back that, oh, that was decades ago. We've advanced far beyond that. Maybe in some ways we have, right? Maybe, maybe. Maybe we have some better technology in certain ways, but we don't know what we don't know about what they had figured out. If we're always assuming our latest thought is so brilliant just because we have an iPhone in our pocket, just because we have high-speed internet and Wi-Fi, just because we have an automobile, that doesn't mean that we're so much smarter and so much better than our ancestors decades ago, centuries ago, millennia ago. So I say kudos to the government of Italy for dealing with this. And I hope that Italy dealing with this catches on 
with other governments in Europe and spreads here to the U.S. I hope. I very much hope. In other news, speaking of things that people who lived a long time ago may have figured out that we don't know, let's talk about an article published in the Times of Israel brought to me, and therefore to you, by way of msn.com, written by Melanie Lidman. The title of this article is Groundbreaking AI Project Translates 5,000-Year-Old Cuneiform at Push of a Button. This, to me, is fascinating because essentially what you have is chat GPT being taught, generative AI being taught what the rules are for translating cuneiform. Cuneiform, very common in ancient Mesopotamia. There are gobs and gobs of samples, things that were written down thousands of years ago etched into wet clay and then dried and baked, and we still have them. But there's so much that we don't know what it says. We have so many samples. We have so much of this writing that has been preserved, that's been collected, that's been dug up and kept, that we don't know what it says. The idea of teaching AI, teaching ChatGPT how to translate it all is fascinating. And let me just suggest to you, it's possible that when these kinds of projects start translating very ancient writings that we haven't been able to decipher sufficiently to this point, it's possible we're going to discover that they had a lot of things figured out several thousand years ago that we just rediscovered. You know, just like during the Dark Ages, There was a lot that was forgotten from the Greeks and the Romans, what they had learned. There was a lot that had been destroyed or forgotten or lost in the way of building techniques and ways of organizing a country or your government. Just like in the Renaissance, you had a rebirth, a rediscovery, a rekindling of the Greek and Roman learning. What if AI translating texts that are thousands of years old in mass turns into something of a rekindling or a rebirth of civilization along certain lines that have been long forgotten, long lost? Now, I say that, and you might say, well, <laughs> but it might not all be good things, right? It might not all be good things that we rediscover. Some of that stuff that we forgot probably was good to forget. And I say, yes, right, point taken. What you could get is a whole lot of dangerous knowledge. What you could get is a whole lot of paganism, a whole lot of ancient religious practice and myth that people get sucked into and they're enamored by and they romanticize it. And then next thing you know, they are putting it on a pedestal and they're worshiping these gods They're promoting these cults. They're promoting these religions again in our day. That's a possibility, sure. But it's also possible that we have a greater respect for those who lived 5,000 years ago, those who lived 4,000 years ago in the cradle of civilization. It's possible that by extension, we will have a greater respect for and a greater understanding of the context of the Old Testament 
it's possible that we will take more seriously the historicity of the Bible. Either way, right? Whether it's good stuff, whether it's bad stuff, whether it's a mixture of the two, some good and some bad that comes with these things being translated. Either way, it's fascinating that this is possible today. This is possible right now. And it may be a short time before we start to see the results of this. And when I say that, I don't mean in some obscure magazine or journal that only really smart people read, only certain experts read. I mean, with our technology today, not just to unpack and translate these works, but also our technology available today to widely disseminate what we find when we translate these things, it will be very interesting to see how quickly we metabolize the information we might be able to get from more than half a million clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform. But speaking of how technology might overhaul our thinking and what we believe about ourselves and where we come from and where we're going to, there's an article in the Denver Post I want to touch on briefly, written by the New York Times News Service Syndicate, at least according to the Denver Post's attribution. I don't know who that is. Maybe this is ChatGPT that wrote the article in question here. But whoever or whatever wrote it, I'll share it with you, starting from the top. For decades, Silicon Valley anticipated the moment when a new technology would come along and change everything. It would unite human and machine, probably for the better, but possibly for the worse, and split history into before and after. The name for this milestone, the singularity. It could happen in several ways. One possibility is that people would add a computer's processing power to their own innate intelligence, becoming supercharged versions of themselves. Or maybe computers would grow so complex that they could truly think creating a global brain. In either case, the resulting changes would be drastic, exponential, and irreversible. A self-aware superhuman machine could design its own improvements faster than any group of scientists, setting off an explosion in intelligence. Centuries of progress could happen in years or even months. The singularity is a slingshot into the future. Artificial intelligence is roiling tech, business, and politics like nothing in recent memory. Listen to the extravagant claims and wild assertions issuing from Silicon Valley, and it seems the long-promised virtual paradise is finally at hand. Sundar Pichai, Google's usually low-key CEO, calls artificial intelligence, quote, more profound than fire or electricity or anything we have done in the past, end quote. Reid Hoffman, a billionaire investor, says, quote, the power to make positive change in the world is about to get the biggest boost it's ever had, end quote. And Microsoft's co-founder Bill Gates proclaims AI, quote, will change the way people work, learn, travel, get health care, and communicate with each other, end quote. AI is Silicon Valley's ultimate new product rollout, transcendence on demand. But there's a dark twist. It's as if tech companies introduced self-driving cars with the caveat that they could blow up before you got to Walmart. Quote, the advent of artificial general intelligence is called the singularity because it is so hard to predict what will happen after that, end quote. 
Elon Musk, who runs Twitter and Tesla, told CNBC last month. He said he thought, quote, an age of abundance, end quote, would result, but there was some chance that it destroys humanity. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's back up. Let's loop back in all of our talk to this point about Numbers 35 and the Denver Public Schools reversing a 2020 ban on law enforcement in their schools. Let's talk about Katy Perry making rude remarks to a 25-year-old wife and mother who was trying out. Let's talk about Trump just making it up on the fly, what should be done with drug dealers. Let's think about Italy removing lesbian partners from children's birth certificates. And yes, like I was just sharing with you, the AI project to translate 5,000-year-old Suniform. All of that in conjunction with the singularity. What are the implications if all of our dependence on the experts and the judges and the wealthy billionaires who promise to make America great again, what happens when all of our waiting on bated breath for political change or social reformation, spiritual revival? What happens when all of that is fed into AI and then AI is able to tell us exactly what we want to hear, when we want to hear it in real time, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year for the rest of our lives. What are the implications? And oh, by the way, going back to numbers 35, what if AI is very like a real person, very believable, and then AI gets somebody killed? Do we say that AI has committed murder and then put AI to death? Do we say AI didn't really mean to? And so AI is now going to retreat to the city of refuge and it can stay there. AI can stay there until the current chief priest dies and then AI can come back out into its normal habitation, resume life. What are the implications of initiating the singularity, as they call it, when we don't even have it figured out whether to put a mother and father on the birth certificate, whether that's an agreeable, acceptable demand of the government. What are the implications of initiating the singularity when the leading Republican contender for being president of the United States of America in 2024 is making it up in real time during the interview, whether he would put to death a woman convicted of trafficking and dealing marijuana against the law, or whether he would pardon her and commute her entire sentence and let her go home and resume her life. What happens when you introduce the singularity into that kind of a context where it's arbitrary, where we're just making it up as we go? And oh, by the way, what if you introduce the singularity and whoever has paid the most money to build the most advanced portions, the most controlling interests in this AI framework, what if that person really thinks they've got it figured out? They really believe they know what's best. Their morality 
is what will carry the day and their reality is evil. What do we do then? You know, very often the singularity or whatever you want to call it is presented, this moment, this possibility, this hypothetical scenario in which AI is global and almost all-knowing and predictive and self-aware, seemingly able to make decisions, take in information, metabolize the information, and come to conclusions and take action. What happens when AI is programmed to believe that conservatives are the enemy or that Christians are the problem? Christians are what is wrong with the world. What happens in that kind of a case? What happens when a whole lot of people saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, absolutely, have made very compelling arguments for why Christians should have no say, no contribution, no investment in determining what's right and wrong. And then you get this thing called the singularity dictating based on somebody else's standard of right and wrong. And now the singularity, this AI superpower is able to completely cut you out of the economy and the public square and general society. What happens then? If that's what the people who are behind the scenes with the generative AI tools want. And don't think that there aren't people out there who want that. And if they could use AI to accomplish it, wouldn't they? You know, these are things we have to be considering. These are things we have to be prepared for in some sense. You can't be totally prepared for all eventualities, but you should consider what the not even long-term ramifications. I'm talking if this Denver Post article is right, and this Denver Post article may have been written by AI, by the way, but if this Denver Post article is right, it could be months. It could be a few short years before all of these things come to pass. You know, it's interesting. I was talking with my friend and pastor, one of our pastors at Summit View, Paul Pavlik, about ChatGPT being asked to write some raps some Christian raps, or asked to explain certain Christian doctrines. And he said, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the answers were very reformed in their theology. A lot of ChatGPT's answers were very Protestant, very reformed, very conservative Christian theology answers. And I quipped at the time. I said, well, you know, that probably is due to a disproportionate amount of chatter online by folks who are reformed, who want to figure things out. They want to speak to these questions of doctrine. They write about it. They argue about it. They make their case. And on the bright side, if you are reformed in your theology, and if ChatGPT is going and scouring the internet and weighting heavily reformed explanations for certain questions of a theological nature regarding the Christian faith, regarding Christ, regarding the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, well, then you should be happy because now ChatGPT is going to presumably be giving people good theology. But then here's the flip side. What if all of a sudden you have people going in and editing so that ChatGPT or whatever is promoting their theology, their doctrine? What if they're generating a whole lot of content that is very 
subtle, to promote their morality, their sect, their dogma, their convictions. And what if you don't agree with those because you're reading the Bible and you're saying, hmm, open AI got this one wrong. Chat GPT got this one wrong. The singularity got this one wrong. There are some very real troubles we're going to have to figure out. Might I suggest to you that a proper application of Numbers 35 would have us requiring people who develop and implement technologies that end up getting people killed, even if it's accidental, those people who develop the technologies without a proper attention to the safeguards, they should probably have to find caution. They should probably have to take up residence in a city of refuge or something to that effect, something like that, the equivalent of that. And more to the point, we should have an expectation that people developing these things must do so with an expectation of consequences, not just positive consequences, not just they'll be rich and famous, but also negative consequences if they are harming other people through being careless or too hasty. We should think carefully about what precedents we're setting when we just lock people away indefinitely for various crimes or when it's just arbitrary. Because then what happens if you have generative AI predicated on being arbitrary? We're going to have to be very careful to not be manipulated by these things when they come to us with ever more convincing believability, personality, very quickly, very easily. We're going to have to know how to not trust the generative AI the way that we have gotten so used to trusting the experts, so many of us. I mean, what's next, right? This is a possible implication. People will say by the same line of reasoning that is offered up that you should just trust that the cops are going to come. You know, you don't need a firearm. You should be able to call 911 and then the police will show up and they will arrest whoever it is. What if a lot of this push to get the police out of public schools or even out of cities and neighborhoods, what if that turns into, well, hey, you know, you know what's objective is generative AI. If we program it to pursue and promote social justice, you call AI and a drone shows up that's controlled by the algorithms and the drone will deal with the crime problem. There you go. Problem solved. Are we ready for that? Have we considered that something like that could be right around the corner? Could be at most if the only thing holding us back in a couple of years is going to be our ethical dilemma. Are we prepared for that to be just a generation away? Something our kids have to deal with? Something they have to wrestle with? Or what about when a very wealthy, very famous pop star wants to embarrass a beautiful young wife and mother who is trying out for American Idol? What if the equivalent in five to 10 years is somebody who doesn't want people having so many babies just feeds the social engineering program to the singularity and says, you take it from here, convince all these people in all these places that we don't want people to be reproducing, convince all these people to stop getting married, stop having kids, stop staying home and raising those kids, stop homeschooling, 
I mean, on the bright side, we won't have the corporate news media, but what we'll have is arguably much, much more effective, much more convincing, much more dangerous. We will be that much more vulnerable to being brainwashed, hypnotized in a fashion. In the meantime, (laughs) while we wait for the singularity to introduce these new challenges and these new problems, which very smart people, very talented, very expert people are working on bringing to us, we can be entertained, I suppose, with the likes of some reporting by Alex Nitzberg over at theblaze.com. Big tech billionaire brawl, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg seemingly agree to fight each other in a cage match. You know what would be very entertaining, actually, if whoever wins, that's the future of the internet. You know, just like in ancient times, you would have two armies opposed to one another, facing off across a plane, and each would send out their greatest warrior. And then whoever won the battle was able to rout the enemy. The other army who had just seen their champion fall had to surrender or run for it. Or the battle would commence, but the morale boost would be for the side whose champion had just won. The morale dump would be for the side whose champion had just been defeated. Maybe something like that. Although I'm not hoping for it because Mark Zuckerberg, it turns out, is rather good at jujitsu, according to reports. Elon Musk doesn't really work out much, doesn't really exercise much, but he's down. Yeah, absolutely. Let's step into an octagon. I'm game, he says. Doesn't really exercise except throwing his kids up in the air, if that counts. Now, in Elon Musk's defense, he says he was involved in some pretty nasty street fights when he was a kid. So... Maybe he knows more than he's letting on. That would be cool. I'm going to root for Elon Musk. Lots of people are probably guessing Mark Zuckerberg's got it. But, you know, even just this story, there's a certain sense in which I question why we should care about that. Any more than we should care what Katy Perry thinks of a 25-year-old wife and mother from California who has a beautiful singing voice having three kids and staying home, and raising them. There's a part of me that wonders why I should care if Elon Musk wins or if Mark Zuckerberg wins, if we're right on the cusp of the singularity, and the powers that be in the world are bent on censoring husbands and fathers and men just like me, drowning us out to where they control what people think. They control the future. They control the narrative. They control our philosophy and our theology and our politics, not content with controlling the economics, they want total control, absolute control, even if just indirectly through their automation of the means of production. The means of production here being you and me, engineered choice, persuasive technology has not shown us even a fraction of what it is capable of in cultivating the consensus, in forming and shaping public opinion. Persuasive technology to this point has just been warming up for what it will be capable of, powered by generative AI. 
powered by the likes of ChatGPT, or the next thing after ChatGPT. And again, I say, if our arguments against God's Word being the standard, the fixed, objective, universal, unchanging, unchangeable, righteous standard, if we make really good arguments against that, generative AI is going to run with those arguments and say, aha, yes, well, see, it needs to be a matter of public opinion, public perception, whatever the public thinks. And then all the generative AI has to be programmed to do is carry the torch forward that corporate news media and social media giants have been carrying and holding for the last several decades. We are getting dumber, treated, regarded more and more as cattle. But you know what? Just like in the last dark ages, you can bet Christians will, if we are stepping into another dark ages just now, as Rod Dreher would say in Live Not By Lies, Christians can be counted on to be the ones who bought books in print and keep them because we are people who read the book. We read the Bible. We study God's word. We value the author's original intent being preserved and not fiddled with because somebody with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of power has decided they want the consensus to be something else. If you wait, if you wait until these things are rolled out to figure out what to do about them, they will tell you before you realize they have been rolled out, they will tell you, (laughs) these tools themselves will tell you what you're supposed to think about them, how you're supposed to feel about them. It's as simple as that. And as a matter of fact, we may already be seeing that. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.